you very much, Esther. Good morning, Avondale Memorial Church. Let's just bow our heads before we open the word. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you that you're the giver of every good and perfect gift. That with you there's no variableness or shadow of turning. Lord, the gift we crave this morning is a gift of your spirit and the gift of your truth. That Lord, uh, you will give a message from your word for this church and for us as individuals this morning. Lord, we crave that and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The, uh, the, the working title for the sermon was uh, Why Seek Sinners? In fact, before that it was Why Evangelism? But I thought I'd simplify the language and make it Why Seek Sinners? The actual title that I wanted to um, do for the sermon, and I guess the working title in my head was why bother with the sinners in Kurumbong? But I didn't know how that would work on the billboard uh, out the front of the church during the week, so I, um, I tempered the title. And I guess I hope you appreciate that when I talk about the sinners of Kurumbong, that I'm being a little facetious in that title, because if we suggest that all the sinners in Kurumbong are out there and not in here then we're battling the same misconception that Jesus had to battle and we'll come to that uh, shortly in, in Luke chapter 15. In terms of why seek sinners, we can have the short version of the sermon which would last about three minutes and probably given what I did to Dr John Hammond and uh, his lesson, I probably deserve to have a shorter sermon. But uh, we can do the short version, but I prefer we do the longer version, but let me do the short version first. If we've got the, uh, the slides on the screen... Uh, there are seven reasons, I think, why it's important that we seek sinners, that we seek and save those which are lost, which, of course, was the mission of Jesus. The first one, of course, is that it's the means that God has given us for saving lost souls. And if you do look in Scripture, you'll see this dichotomy between the saved and the lost, and that Jesus has a desire for the salvation of the lost, and that we're part of that mission to save the lost. Uh, the second reason would be to build up his church. Hopefully this is working for us now. To build up his church. And by building up his church, I don't mean the structure. You know, it's, it's nice that we have an enormous structure here at Avondale Memorial Church. There are a few empty seats I can see. And uh, it would certainly be God's desire that those seats be filled. But when the Bible talks about church, it's not so much talking about a structure as a group of called out people. And uh, God desires that that group of called out people becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. He has a passion in his heart for that, that we can share. Why seek lost people? Because it's a means of unifying the church. A means of unifying the church. There's nothing like um, focusing our attention on those that are outside rather than on ourselves. I remember when I was... Um, I've been a Seventh-day Adventist all my life, but by the age of my mid-30s, had never shared my faith once. Never, hardly had a conversation about my faith, let alone led anybody to have an experience with Jesus like I was having. I uh, learned some skills and uh, started doing that. And in terms of the 
the, the personal growth, but also the, 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 the unifying impact of that, um, not only to my church, but to the, the, the teachings of my church, it was, it was powerful. So God's means of unifying the church. When we're looking outward, we're often more unified than when we're simply looking inward. I've already talked about personal spiritual growth. Why seek sinners? Because in doing that, we have to elevate our own experience. It's very, very challenging to go and uh, share an experience and encourage people to have an experience if you don't have one yourself. And so God's means of personal spiritual growth is seeking and saving those that are lost. Number five, God's means of finishing the work on earth is seeking the lost. He, he, we've been here too long, have we not? We would love to go home. And God wants to give everyone an opportunity to make a decision about whether they want to be part of that or not. Six, God's means of reuniting us with our loved ones. I happen to have three loved ones in the Avondale Cemetery over there, my mother, my brother and a nephew. And it's my earnest desire that I see them one day. And God's means of reuniting families and, and, and us with loved ones is that we continue to preach and to teach and to uh, encourage people into a relationship with God. And finally, and this is the one that I want to uh, focus on for the rest of this morning, is God's means of bringing joy to the universe. Let's pause on that one for the rest of the sermon. How do you really show somebody that you love them? How do you really show someone that you love them? I need a lot of help with that, so I googled it. Um, and I uh, came up with a whole range of lists. The three ways to show someone that you love them. The, the ten ways, the twenty ways. You can even find a list of 101 ways to show somebody that you love them. One of the things that's been popular in recent times is the five love languages. Have you heard of the five love languages? The way you show somebody that you love, that you either give love or receive love through these five love languages. The first one is uh, words of affirmation. Now, unfortunately, in my situation, that's probably my wife's primary love language, words of affirmation, in terms of receiving love but I'm not a great one at doing that. My language is um, acts of service. So while I'm doing the washing up and while I'm cleaning up the kitchen and while I'm washing the car and when I'm mowing the lawn, I'm thinking in my head, she must know how much I love her. This must be very abundantly clear. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm powerfully communicating how much I love my wife. She hasn't heard a word of affirmation in weeks. And so there's a mismatch between our love languages and the way we... And that, you know, I need to learn to give more words of affirmation. Acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time and physical touch, the five love languages. How do each of those go in our relationship with God? I guess the question I want to get to the bottom of today is, do you really love God? Do, do you, how, how, would it, how would it be that you show your love for God? 
let's go through these five love languages. Words of affirmation. Do you enjoy singing praise, giving praise to God in various ways, either singing or verbally? Do you enjoy extolling the virtues and giving adoration and praise to God through our words? Maybe you're into poetry, maybe you're into prose and you write down. Is that something that you can see yourself doing in relationship to God? How about receiving gifts? How do you give your gifts to God in order to express your love for him? How are you going with tithes and offerings, for example? How much of your time do you give to God? How much of your talents do you give to God as expressions of love for him? Acts of service. Matthew 25, it talks about, and as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. A way of showing our love for God is in our acts of kindness and acts of service. Quality time. How much time do you spend in prayer and Bible study? Showing God that you love him. Are all those things things that you enjoy doing? Or do they feel like a chore? Do they feel like, well, you know, I'm a Christian and that's the things that Christians do? Or is it really a, a hard experience where that's actually things I enjoy doing because I know they bring happiness to the heart of God? And to bring happiness to the, someone that you love is a, a way of showing and demonstrating that love. Physical touch, of course, is a little challenging when it comes to God. But the rest of them we can certainly do. How do you feel about God? In our Sabbath school this morning, we sung the hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee. Does that, the res does that resonate with your heart? Do you really love Jesus? You know, I guess many people have some challenges with that whole concept of loving God because maybe they have a misrepresentation in their mind of the character of God. Maybe they see God as distant and uncaring, or judgmental and harsh, <clears throat> or an eternal torturer. Maybe a misconception of the character of God has made it challenging for them to really experience a love response to God. Or maybe they have a misunderstanding of God's attitude toward them right now. And they're struggling to really think that they're loved by God. In the book, uh, Christ Object Lessons, uh, there's a couple of quotes that I want to share with you. The first is this one. There are many who try to reform by correcting this or that bad habit, and they're hoping this way to become Christians, but they're beginning in the wrong place. Our first work is with the heart. If it is that we really love God, obviously that's a heart response. It's not a duty response. A little later, in the same, uh, around the same page, it says, True obedience is the outworking of a principle from within. It springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. This will lead us to do right because it is right, because right doing is pleasing to God. Why do I want to do all these acts of service for my wife? Because yes, she is pleased that I do all that stuff. I want to do stuff for her because it is pleasing to her because I love her. What do we do when it comes to our love for God? What, what, what do we do in order to please God? 
You know, God has many, many opportunities to be sad. I think we give him many, many opportunities to, to weep. Both individually, corporately, and in terms of a planet. You go back to the Bible, Eden would have made God weep. The golden calf would have made God very sad. The apostasy of Israel and their, the fact that they just couldn't couldn't stay with him through the period of the judges and the kings would have been plenty of opportunity for God to be sad. The rejection of Christ, things that happen in our world today, you know, God attended 151,000 funerals yesterday. And he'll attend another 151,000 funerals today, another 151,000 tomorrow. There's plenty of opportunities for God to be sad. You know, in the United States, and <clears throat> understand the United States only represents 4.5% of the world population. But the thing about the United States is there's always a lot of statistics about the United States more than a lot of other places. So let's just let me give you some statistics from the U.S., Every 35 minutes in the US, there's a murder. That breaks the heart of God. Every six minutes, there's a rape. Every one and a half minutes, there's a robbery. Every 40 seconds, there's an assault. They're all things that would, you know, we, 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 the, the heart of God loves every person involved in each of those acts of crime at a level that we don't even understand. And so the heart of God would, would ache for each of those. Every year in the world, there's 437,000 murders committed. That'd be outside the field of war and, and battle. That's a whole other another issue. I could go on and on and on with statistics of things that God experiences that make him sad. So wouldn't it be great if we could create some experiences that make him happy, that give God some joy, because we love him. If we go to the scriptures, we can find a number of passages that uh, describe things that make God happy. Let me give you a few of them. Proverbs 27 verse 11. My son, be wise and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. You know, the world is full of people that are reproaching God, that have, you know, throw abuse in the face of God or really have no regard for him whatsoever. Basically saying, hey, live a life that is consistent with what I'm all about so that I can have an answer for them. Look at, look at this person. They're living out my character. So like a life lived consistent with the character of God makes makes God glad. Another passage over in Colossians. We also do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. If we, once again, live that consistent life, increasing in our spiritual understanding, 
being increasingly fruitful, increasing our knowledge of God, if we're living that life where we're continuing to grow in grace and we're allowing the sanctifying work of the Spirit to operate in our life, that makes God happy. The Bible says it's fully pleasing to Him. A source of joy for God. You'd be familiar with Hebrews chapter 2, sorry, chapter 12 and verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus went through all that because he knew that there would be some that would accept that and that would create joy for him. Having experienced the heartache of rejection of the rebellion in Eden, he instantly put in a process whereby he could win back and bring back those that he had created with such joy and desired to live forever in a joyful relationship with. I want to spend a little time in Luke chapter 15. I haven't got these verses on the, on the, on the screen, so you might want to open your Bibles there. We'll spend the rest of our time in Luke 15 because in Luke 15, there are a whole lot of, a whole lot of lost things and there's a reaction that God has to the things that are lost when they are found. Luke chapter 15, notice the context of it. Then all the tax collectors and sinners, I'm in verse 1 of Luke 15, then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So who is it that's drawing near to Jesus in a positive way? The tax collectors and sinners, who I guess we'll describe as the ones outside the church. They're approaching God and they're approaching, sorry, approaching Jesus, they're approaching him in a very positive way. The reaction of those in the church is to complain. What are these sinners? You know, this guy's associating with sinners. And they've created this dichotomy between those outside the church who are sinners and those inside the church who are obviously saints. And so they're complaining to Jesus, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. For that reason, for the, for the reason that they've complained to him about the fact that sinners are messing up the whole thing they've got going on, he speaks these parables. So the main, I guess, the main audience, I guess, that he has for these parables is the leaders of the church, the scribes and the Pharisees. The sinners are coming to Jesus and the people in the church are complaining. Now, I guess you can look at these parables in a number of ways. I guess the immediate application is to you know, Jesus going to the Jewish nation 2,000 years ago and endeavouring to woo them to himself and they're sort of, you know, they're, 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 they're the lost sheep or the lost coin and so on. There's an immediate application. If you go to Christ Object Lessons, Ellen White uses the application of the uh, renegade rogue planet Earth that has been the one that has rebelled and has been lost. And Jesus goes out in search of this lost rogue planet, endeavouring to win it back. 
And what I want to do is take the principles I think that we can learn from these parables and try and apply them to today and apply them to the Avondale Memorial Seventh-day Adventist Church in 2018. Most of you, well, some of you would be familiar with the fact that the Avondale Memorial Seventh-day Adventist Church has been here in Kurumbong for well over 100 years. It was constructed in 1896-1897 when the church bought the Brett Estate, which is the 607 hectares on which the factory and the college and the school and everything else and this church is located. When they bought that, everybody came from, or every Seventh-day Adventist, which wasn't many of them, came from miles around to help in the construction of the college. And, of course, as Seventh-day Adventists started congregating in this little town of Kurumbong that was so far from anywhere, they wanted somewhere to worship. When they had bought the estate, the first thing that they built on the estate was the sawmill they needed to cut the timber in order to construct the college. And so they built a sawmill and the first worship services they have is on the floor of the sawmill. And then after a little while they start meeting in the loft of the sawmill. But Ellen White has a significant burden that they have to erect a, uh, a place of worship. You can uh, see a number of letters she wrote in 1896 expressing this desire to, to build a house of worship in Kurumbong. Through 1896-1897, the uh, construction begins. Uh, the original church has a seating capacity of 450 and is completed in at the end of the academic year in 1897 and the first worship service that's in the Avondale Memorial Church is on October 16, 1897. So it's been around for a while. That building, of course, of course, served the church very, very well for many, many years until this one was constructed in 1971 by Guy Menzies. Many of you would recall all of that. You know, I grew up in, in Kurumbong in, through the 1970s and 1980s and Kurumbong was a little different in those days than it is today. Um, not, not a huge amount different, but a bit different. I grew up in what originally, when I moved there, was Dora Creek Road, it's now Newport Road. But if you came to Kurumbong in those days, it was really, if you lived in Kurumbong, you lived on Freeman's Drive or Newport Road or Avondale Road or Alton Road or Babers Road or Martinsville Road or Crawford, Crawford Road or Red Hill Street or Victory Street. That was it. There were no more. I understand we've got a few more streets around today. Um, but it was it was smaller, and it was percentage of Seventh Day Adventists was very very high. I could ride down the streets of uh, Kurumbong on my bike, and I would know the who lived in almost every house, and I knew which of them went to church and which of them didn't. And um, it was sort of yeah, 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 through, I guess, being part of the church, you developed an interesting attitude to those that didn't. I guess some of you here go back a lot longer than I, but when I first came here in about 1970, you could buy a house and land for $10,000. I don't know what they're selling for in Wadigan Park at the moment. A little bit more than that, I'd suggest. 
The population of Kurumbong today, according to the 2016 census, is 5,500. Guess what the percentage of Seventh-day Adventists is? It's just under a third. 31 point something percent. Now, if my maths is any good, that makes about 1,700 people in Kurumbong that are claiming, are putting on the census form Seventh-day Adventist. 1,700. I understand that here on a usual Sabbath, there's about six or 700, maybe. Um, there's a fair number down at Avondale College. Now, remember that 5,500 total population and 1,700 is Kurumbong Township alone. It's not Morissette, it's not Dora Creek, it's not the whole Lake Peninsula, it's Kurumbong. So I guess the question that I have to ask is, of the 1,700, how many of them are still coming to church? Is there indeed a mission field for the Avondale Memorial Church in the township of Kurumbong? The first parable that we have in Luke 15 is the parable of the lost sheep. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness? Go after the one who is lost until he finds it. When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. Remember the, the people that were being talked sorry, the people that were being talked to in this place as the leaders of the church. And we have 99 sheep that are in a fold and we have a sheep that has been lost from the fold. Just given the simple stats that I just gave you about the number of people in Kurumbong that claim to be Seventh-day Adventists and the number of people that are in church, is it a possibility? Is it just a possibility that while we're here enjoying the warmth of the fold that there's some lost sheep in the town of Kurumbong. Is, is, is that a possibility? I, I went through the church roll. There's actually a 1,072 people on the Avondale Memorial Church roll. I went through the church roll. Um, as I say, I, I grew up here for 20-odd years, um, been back in the area for a, a while now. I, without trying too hard, could find about 17 people on the Avondale Memorial Church roll who uh, are not here anymore. You could classify them, if you like, as, as lost sheep. They're still on the roll, but they're maybe not in the fold. What does the shepherd do in order to go and find those lost sheep? He leaves the 99. Leaves the 99. And there's a whole other sermon about pastors hovering over churches and ministering more to the saints than the lost and so on. I won't, that, that, that's a whole different sermon. I won't go there. But there's concerted effort at personal danger by the shepherd to go and find the lost. The shepherd goes out and at personal risk and with passion and with an earnest heart goes out in search of those lost sheep. I wonder whether we're making the same sort of efforts at personal risk, at personal danger. We're challenging ourselves to go and find those lost sheep from the house of Israel that aren't with us anymore. 
you know, a sheep is lost, sort of knows that it's lost, but doesn't know how to get back into the fold. And I think maybe there's some people in Kurumbong that are in that situation. Maybe they're out there and they are maybe not living the exciting, fulfilled and so on lives that maybe they thought that leaving the fold would bring. But maybe finding their way back is a bit challenging. I don't know, you know, coming in through those doors, coming up those white steps and coming into this church may be a bit intimidating for them. Maybe there might be some shame associated with the circumstances of their leaving. Maybe there's some broken relationships with people here in the Avondale Memorial Church. And so to find their way back is challenging. What are we proactively doing to find the lost sheep and bring them back into the fold? Is that the pastor's job? Yeah, it is. The word pastor is just a Latin word for shepherd. So yeah, it's, it's, it's the pastor's role, but we do believe in the priesthood of all believers. And so really it's all our role to seek out the lost sheep. If I was to ask you whose job is it to seek those lost sheep, what would be the correct answer? We could say everybody's, but the real correct answer is mine. For, that, that's the correct answer for everybody in, sitting here. Whose job is it to seek the lost sheep? It's my job. Let's personalise whose job it is. The second parable um, is about the lost coin. The lost coin in verses 8, 9 and 10 on, of oh, that woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. Notice where the coin is lost. I might be stretching for you theologians here. I might stretch it a little bit in this one. Notice where the coin is lost. It's lost in the house. It's lost in the house. Where, what's, what's it lost among? It's lost among the dirt and the debris in the house. Is it a chance that in some of our churches we have some accumulated dirt and that people are getting lost in the accumulated dirt in the house. You know, as the General Secretary, you often get called in to some of those challenging situations in local churches. Uh, I was going to one church where there was a significant fight over who held the control of the air conditioner. Who held control, the, who, who got the control? You know, often these fights are over power and control, aren't they? So, of course, uh, one section of the church believed it was far too hot and the other section believed it was far too cold. And who was responsible for making sure that it was the right temperature? And, of course, this was a huge issue. Um, the, right, the temperature in the church, we had a board meeting on it. Guess what the outcome of the board meeting was? It should be permanently set at 23 degrees and it's not allowed to go like that. It's got to stay like that. That was a tough board meeting. Uh, nominating committee time. Nominating committee time can bring out a lot of pain. can bring out a lot of deep, sometimes intergenerational conflict. Sometimes we have to intervene at conference level for nominating committee report time. 
not really our role, but we get caught up. Family squabbles, intergenerational conflict, power and control. Is there a chance that in some of our churches, people are getting lost in the dirt in the church? What's the... Well, in fact, before we go there, go to Ephesians chapter 3. I'll just throw this in. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. It talks about the function of the church. It says, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. The, 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 the function of the church is to make everybody see what the wisdom of God looks like. And if you look at the wisdom of God, if you look at the, I guess, even the construction of the Trinity, it's a all-loving, all-caring, kind... Um, it, 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 it exists, the, the, the Godhead exists for the benefit of others only, not for the benefit of self. And so when people come into the church, this verse says that the intent of the church is to make that character known. So if people walk in those doors at the back there, they should be able to look at the relationships that exist in the church and say, okay, that's what God is like. I can see it now. I can see it lived out in the lives and the relationships of the people in the church. I wonder how often they can do that. They can walk into our churches and see by the way we care for each other what God is like. Notice what the woman does in finding the coin. She sweeps. I think sometimes there is a work of sweeping and cleaning the dirt, but let's not make it a personal journey and a personal vendetta that, you know, I have all wisdom on what needs to happen in this church and if people would just uh, do things the way that I want them done, that would sweep the dirt out and we'd be fine. I think it needs to be a united corporate repentance and reformation that would bring about the sweeping and the cleaning. There's a, there's a sweeping, there's a cleaning, there's a holding up of a lamp. I guess in scripture a lamp is often used as a symbol for scripture. The holding up of the word of God and there's some diligent effort that goes into the finding of those lost coins. Is there a chance that in our church there's some lost coins, people that have just been discouraged by what's happened in the church. The third parable is about the prodigal son. The prodigal son is obviously a child of the father uh, and aren't, all, aren't we all are children of the heavenly father? Not only are we children of the heavenly father in here but we're children, of, everybody out there is also a, children, a child of the heavenly father. prodigal son is lost and realises it's lost and knows that it's lost and has a sense to do something about it. And I guess uh, the thing that brought the prodigal son back to his senses was an understanding of what life was like back at home. There may be some in our community who once worshipped with us, maybe had a really good experience here, but now they've gone, they're, they're on their prodigal son experience and may it be that they see a representation of God in you, in their neighbours, in the acts of charity and service that are undertaken by this church that says, hey, that, that, was, that was good, that was wonderful. I need to go back to the experience that I had at that time. 
how many in Kurumbong are on their prodigal journey at the moment? The fourth parable, you only thought there was three, there's four. The fourth parable is about this elder brother. And of all these, I think I can probably relate to this one the most. The elder brother has been in the father's house the whole time, always been there, always been experiencing the joy, I guess, well, maybe not so much the joy. He's sort of seen his experience in the father's house as a bit of a burden, but he stayed there. He's staying there, but maybe he doesn't really understand the character of the father and the real understanding of grace. Is it, is it possible, is it possible that we can be members of a Seventh-day Adventist church? Is it possible that we can come to Avondale Memorial Church for decades and still not understand the grace and love of the Father? Is it, is it possible? Is it possible that we could go for decades having list, list, listened to literally hundreds of sermons, been born in the church, gone through Sabbath school and adventurers and pathfinders and youth group and married well in the church and served faithfully and paid our tithes and offerings and sitting here this morning maybe not truly understanding the character of the father still you know one of the challenges one of the one of the we we have the aged care facility just over the road and i sit on the board of that and from time to time we hear stories at, at board level of people that have always been in the church, have been church administrators, have been... And they get to the end of their life there and they're on their final throes of life and still haven't got assurance and are worried and concerned. Is it possible that having experienced all of that, we could still manifest the same attitude as the elder brother? How would we test that? If somebody walked into this church this morning who you had previously had a disagreement with and yet they hadn't seen them for years and they walked back into this church. In my day, they didn't have a bottle shop here in Kurumbong. The only employers in those days was, the, was either education or sanitarium and there was Max Coppin, I think Max, I saw you before, Max Coppin who had the shop down here, there he is had the shop over the road here. There was Max and Fran Hulls who had the corner store down on Avondale Road. And there was Kevin Strong who had the service station on the other side of Avondale Road. But now we have a bottle shop. What if, what if somebody walked into the church who'd probably been to the bottle shop recently and it was sort of smelled? Would we have the same attitude as the older brother? If they smelled a little bit of cigarettes or they weren't dressed appropriately for church... They hadn't received all the light on health reform yet. Would our attitude be the same as the older brother? If somebody celebrated that, would we look down on them and say, what, what? It's challenging, isn't it? I can relate so much to the older brother. I'm the guy who's been in church all, all, all my life. Born Sydney Adventist Hospital, grew up in Kurumbong, went and worked at the division, you know, the whole deal. I can, I, can, I can easily relate and I guess potentially manifest the same attitudes as the older brother.
I think there's a rich harvest field in the town of Kurumbong. There's people that identify them as Seventh-day Adventists and there's hundreds and hundreds of people moving into town right now that have nothing, have never had anything to do with Seventh-day Adventists. What sort of experience are they having when they move next door to you? What sort of experience are they having when they go and shop at whatever the shop over the road's called now? Are they having a great experience moving into a town that is every third person is claims Seventh-day Adventism? What sort of experience are they having as they move into this town? What sort of picture are they getting of this building and what happens inside here? We, we, we seek sinners because it brings joy to the heart of God. Not because we might feel guilty about the fact that we haven't done any evangelism in a while or whatever. We seek sinners because we love God and seeking and saving the lost brings joy to his heart. Notice the reaction of all of the, in all of these situations. The shepherd comes back with the sheep, the friends and neighbours come and they rejoice for they've found the sheep that was lost. The coin is found, the woman brings all her friends and neighbours together and they rejoice for what has been lost is now found. The prodigal son comes back, the father holds the celebration. And there's joy at the person that is lost. In Zephaniah 3.17, I think I've got it on the screen. Sorry, I had pictures of all of those things. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God in the midst, the mighty one will save. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love and he'll rejoice over you with singing. That's a beautiful picture of God, isn't it? A God that's just enjoying and receiving joy as a result of the fact that you've made a decision and that you've encouraged others to make a decision. Karl Barth um, was a Swiss theologian and scholar, probably be regarded as one of the most prominent, greatest Protestant theologians of the 20th century. Once he was doing a lecture at the University of Chicago School of Divinity, absolutely brilliant. At the end of the lecture, someone came up to him and he said, Carl, what's the most, the greatest theological discovery that you've ever made? Everyone's sort of waiting with bated breath. He says, you know what? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, if we truly understood that in our heart of hearts, if that sunk in very, very deep, we would love him. And as a result of loving him, we would want to make his heart glad. Amen.